Today's text is from Judges chapter 10 and 11. I'll be reading a few excerpts. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me and drive me out from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home against to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be our witness between us, if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Arer to the neighborhood of Minnith, twenty cities, and as far as ebel Karamim, and with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks that you have given us a word, and it's not a word of man, but it's a word from you. So it is full of truth and power. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply what it is you want to speak to us. May we be receptive to the movement of your spirit this morning. And may you send us out in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. I'm going to tread into sports here. And I love playing sports. I don't like watching sports. So bear with me. But I find one of the most surprising moments in modern sports to be the 2000 NFL Combine, and specifically Tom Brady's appearance in the 2000 NFL Combine. Again, I'm not a big football guy. My understanding of the NFL Combine, if you are not a football person, 
is it's a four-day invitation-only event where prospective players for the NFL will show up and go through various drills, and scouts are invited, and they can kind of get a look at future prospective future NFL players. Um, and uh, the reason why Tom Brady's appearance is so surprising in that 2000 combine is that Brady looked like anything but one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Uh, if you remember this after church, uh, go ahead and Google Tom Brady NFL Combine 40-yard sprint. Don't do it now. And just so you know, I can tell if you're on your phone, so don't do it now. Wait till after church. Um, but for a man who's supposedly supposed to be laying out his all to impress NFL scouts, he looks like he barely gets above a fast jog. I mean, he's just slow as molasses. Uh, for some reason, they take a photo of you in your underwear for the NFL Combine. I don't understand that. But it comes up if you look. It's not inappropriate. It just looks like he looks like an office worker. I don't know how else to say this. Like, he just doesn't look like an elite athlete. He's kind of flabby, kind of, uh, you know, just angular. He doesn't look very unathletic. And when you look at the videos of him at his combine, look at the photo of him, it is hard to imagine that this man will go on to win seven Super Bowls, to hold the record for the most games won, most career passing yards, most career touchdown passes, most Pro Bowl selections, and literally a dozen other career records. I know you either love him or hate him, but it's hard to argue that he's probably not the best quarterback of all time. But based on his NFL combine performance, I don't think anyone would have thought he'd go on to those kinds of accomplishments. Just a surprising candidate. Well, as judges goes on, there's a similar phenomenon with the judges themselves. They get more and more surprising. So the first judge, Othniel, he's kind of what you expect from a judge. He's a, a warrior. He seems to fear God. He's the ideal judge. And then you get Ehud, right? He's left-handed. Or as I argued, I think we're supposed to see he's got a physical disability. Not what you'd expect. It's surprising. And we have Deborah, right? She's a woman. That's surprising. And we have Gideon, who's from uh, an unknown clan in a lesser powerful tribe, and he's very fearful. Not what you look for in a military hero. It's surprising. But with Jephthah, I think we get the most surprising candidate yet. But what's fascinating with Jephthah is that the very things that make him surprising as a judge are the very things that prepare him for the unique role that God has for him. And there's all kinds of encouragements in there for us. That all the things in our life that we don't understand why God is doing them or why he'd allow them to happen to us, none of it's for nothing. But God is at work preparing us to be the people he wants us to be. That's what he's doing in Jephthah. We see the hand of God. And yet, what we'll see with Jephthah and even more with Samson who comes after Jephthah is that just because someone works through I'm sorry, just because God works through someone, it's not evidence that God is working in them. In Jephthah, God will work mightily through him, but it will become clear that God is not at work in Jephthah. So, our outline for us this morning, first point, Israel's repentance. Second point, a very unlikely hero. And third point, negotiating with God and becoming like Canaan. So, first point, Israel's repentance. Let me read again for us verses uh, 6 to 8 in chapter 10. 
The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they were oppressed, all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. So here Israel is, is reaching a new low. Uh, spiritually, they're reaching a new low. It's not just that they're worshiping the Baals and the Ashtoreth. They're literally going after all the idols of all the nations. Uh, it's somewhat reminiscent of when God would tell Israel, you're going to go in and you're going to drive out these nations, and it lists all of them. Well, here Israel is going after their gods. And Baal and Ashtoreth isn't enough for Israel at this point. They're going after any god who they think might help them, any god except Yahweh, of course. And as a nation, politically, they're at a new low. They're not being oppressed by one nation, they're being oppressed by two nations. They have the Ammonites, who are on the eastern side, and I tried to create a map for this, and I'm just so graphically, just incompetent. So I spent like 40 minutes this morning and it wasn't working out. But anyways, if you look at Israel, the Ammonites are coming from this end, uh, and then the Philistines are coming from the other end. And so they're being kind of pressured between these two foreign nations, and, and Jephthah is going to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. And then, again, we see Samson, his primary ministry is against the Philistines on the other side. But they're, they're at a, a, a low as a nation, and so it describes them in verse 8 as crushed and oppressed. And the trend during Judges, the trend for Judges, which makes it so difficult to read at times, is that it just keeps getting worse and worse. It's a decline, a, a relentless decline. And we see that in the Judges as well. As time goes by, not just the nation is morally compromised, but the Judges become morally compromised and less and less good. But what we see here follows the usual pattern. Israel runs after false gods, so God sells them to a foreign nation, and then they cry out to God. But there's a difference here in what we normally see, because normally here we would see, and so God raised up a judge. But instead, God answers back to Israel. And this is verse 10 to 14. Let me read this for us. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Again, you'd imagine this is where God's going to raise up the deliverer, but the Lord responds. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Essentially, God is calling into question the sincerity of their repentance. And he's saying, you know, are you really repentant? Or are you just looking for help in a tough situation? Are you really trying to turn back to me, to Yahweh, to restore this relationship, or do you just want the suffering to end? Which is it? And he's very frank with Israel. You've chosen your gods. Go see if they'll help you. And of course, we can, we can do exactly what Israel is doing. Right? When, when life goes well, we don't need God. Our prayer life dwindles, our time in the word dwindles. 
and then a crisis happens, and all of a sudden, we're praying like we've never prayed before. And the crisis goes away, and, and then so do our prayers. And that's not true discipleship. True discipleship, rather, is seen by Israel's second and sincere repentance, which comes in verse 15 and 16. So Israel repents first, God questions whether this is sincere, and then Israel responds in verse 15, and the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And every time I read that, I get chills. When Yahweh becomes impatient over the misery you're experiencing, something is going to happen. But, but here's the point. What makes this sincere? Well, verse 15, when Israel turns to God and repents and says, do to us whatever seems right to you. What is Israel saying in that moment? They're saying, all that matters to us, God, is if we have you. The rest is negotiable. That's what we need. Israel is surrendering to Yahweh. And that's the basis of true discipleship. If we only go to God when we need something, what are we saying? What we're saying is what is most ultimate is what we need, not God. And so surrender is the essence of discipleship, is us saying, Jesus, I don't want you primarily for the gifts that you give me, but I want you for you. As the disciple said beautifully in John 6, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? This is what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 16, 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And so we see what this tells us about true repentance. Again, it's true repentance. is saying, I realize I grieve my sin because of what it has done to my relationship with God. And what I want most of anything is to have God back. And it doesn't matter what that will cost me. It doesn't matter what the consequences will be. I must have God. Everything else is negotiable. It's a helpful depiction of what true repentance looks like. But I want to follow with a little word of caution before we move on to our second point. And it's this. There's debate among commentators over whether even the second repentance is authentic. Why? Because they say, you know, they say first in verse 15, you know, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us. So some commentators will say, well, there's still... They're still just looking for the goods, for, for the gifts of God. And this is just a more sophisticated way of saying that. And I don't think so. I, 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 don't th- like, I think we're allowed to ask the Lord what we really want. And the reason I think that is because it's what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. But yet not my will but yours be done. I think that's pretty much what Israel does here. But I have to be honest with you. I, I, I don't think we can be clear. I mean, we don't know the hearts of Israel. We don't know, is this 100% authentic, 80% authentic, 60% authentic? And it can be helpful for us to step back at times and to think through what does real repentance look like because it's all too easy for humans, for us to be sorry that something happened and sorry about the consequences and not really repent. That's all too easy. But we can take that too far where we get into the point where we begin analyzing the minutia of our feelings or the feelings of someone else, or is that 100% authentic, or is there 2% in there that's just afraid of the consequences? And this is where we have to remind ourselves, this may be a bit of a mind bender, but 
We are not saved by the perfection of our repentance, nor are we saved by the perfection of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. We are forgiven not because we repent perfectly with a whole pure heart. We are forgiven because the blood of Christ covers us and was shed for us. And what that means is that even an imperfect and weak faith, if it's in the right thing, if it's in Jesus' death for sinners, even an imperfect and weak faith is a saving faith. But I think, I think this is a genuine repentance. And so here we get God raising up a very unlikely hero. This is our second point. So first point, Israel's repentance. Second point, a very unlikely hero. Now Jephthah the Gileadite, this is verses one to three, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. There are a number of things in this story that make him a very unlikely deliverer. First, he's a son of a prostitute. Now, there are two main kinds of prostitutes at this time in Israel. You would have had women who were prostituting themselves because they had no other way to make money. And, and tragically, oftentimes, these were widows who had children to support. And unless you were independently wealthy, there weren't many options for a woman to be able to make money. And so you had widows who would prostitute themselves to provide for their children. The other most common form of prostitution in the ancient Near East was cultic prostitution. It was tied to the to worship of Baal and Asherah. And so these prostitutes would live at shrines or temples and prostitution services were part of the worship of Baal and Asherah. And I've explained that before. I don't want to get into that again. It's rather distasteful, to be honest. Uh, but what's interesting, again, is, is considering the theme of Israel's compromise with Baal worship that's so prevalent through Judges, I kind of think that Jephthah's mother was not just a prostitute, but was a cult prostitute, which means not only was she a prostitute, but she was a foreigner. And so again, in a very class-stratified society, if you're the son of a prostitute, you're pretty low down on the, on the totem pole, and then not only that, but you're likely a foreigner, and so you're not even a son of Abraham. That's the first thing that makes Jephthah pretty unlikely. But second, he's rejected by his own family. I mean, his brothers drive him out. And here's an, an image for us into where Israel's at in terms of a nation. I mean, God had commanded Israel to care for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner among them. What did the brothers of Jephthah do? They, because of their own financial self-interest, they don't want to share their inheritance or somehow be liable for caring for Jephthah, they drive him out. He's rejected by his own family. And what's so tragic, what makes you want to weep is, none of this was Jephthah's fault. He didn't do anything to be born into the circumstances, the sins of his father and his mother being visited on him. But yet he's, I mean, he's rejected by his family. He goes and lives in Tov again. I had I, a great plans of making a map and showing you where Tov is. It, it, it's on the far eastern, far eastern frontier. Like it's right at the edge of Israel and, and, and the, the, the desert. It was, it, was, it was a wild, wild west town. If you've seen old western movies, you know, with the, like saloons and, you know, it's a place where desperate men congregate. That's Tov. 
He goes there, which is funny because in Hebrew it means good, but it was not a good place. It was a wild place. So he lives in a pretty sketchy area, and then he becomes what seems a mercenary leader. It says that a band of worthless men congregate around him. That, that's the same word that's used to describe the men that Abimelech hires to kill his half-brothers. And it says that they collected around Jephthah and they went out with him. It seems that he's leading a mercenary game. He's swords for hire. So this is, this is Israel's unlikely hero. An illegitimate son of a prostitute who's rejected by his own kinfolk, who surrounds himself with the worst of society and he kills for money. Not exactly the resume you look for in someone to lead God's people and deliver them from their enemies. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, Jephthah is that man. He is the hero. And in fact, all the things that make him seem so unsuited for this are the very things that make him uniquely suited for what God had called him to do. So first, Jephthah is a mighty warrior. This is how we're introduced to him in verse one. It says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. How do you become a mighty warrior? You fight a lot. He's a mercenary. He would have been one of the few men in Israel who had like significant combat experience exactly what you want as someone to lead your troops. Second, Jephthah was a shrewd leader and a shrewd negotiator. We see this when, when, when it was read, he, he, when the, the, the elders come to him to ask him to be their leader and he negotiates with them. Jephthah knows the leaders of Gilead would only come to him if he was literally the last hope they had on the planet. Why? Because they'd driven him out. And so when they come to him, he knows he has all the cards. And so he drives a hard bargain, and he gets advantage for himself. He's a shrewd negotiator, and when you're going up against an Ammonite king who's making claims, you've got to be shrewd in how you deal with them. And Jephthah does that. I mean, where does this shrewdness come from? Well, again, in a place like Tove, you're either smart or you die. When you're the leader of a mercenary gang, you either learn certain people skills or one of your own mercenaries murders you. The very place that was so suspect is forming him to have the skill sets he needs to, to do what God is calling him to do. It's kind of like, um, I've heard before that you know, very successful drug dealers are really entrepreneurial businessmen. Uh, I, I, I'm not in any way saying, I mean, I think the drug trade is a, you know, I'm not saying anything positive about the drug trade. But the point is that the same skills, so many drug dealers, if they'd been born in a different circumstance, or if they'd made different life choices, they could have started legal and profitable businesses and been very successful. Because the skill sets that allow you to be a very successful drug dealer, the people skills, innovation, the hard work, the imagination, the marketing, are the same skills that if they were leveled in another area would have been very profitable in a legal business. This is Jephthah. He's in a morally suspect job, but it's preparing him with the skill sets he needs to be the man that Israel needs in this moment. And then third, Jephthah is, he clearly has a highly analytical mind and a surprisingly good grasp of history. We didn't read this part, but uh, the, king of Ammon, the king of the Ammonites, he's coming against Israel and he's making certain claims. And, and what he's saying is, Israel, you took my land so give it back. When you came in, you, in, your conquest, you know, in the conquest and you, and you dispossessed all these nations, like you took our land and now we want it back. 
And so Jephthah writes a long letter where he gives out three arguments against this. And one is a historical argument, one is a theological argument, one is a legal argument. And the historical argument is he says, no, no, no. You guys never owned this land. It was actually the Amorites. He says, you don't understand your own history. The Ammonites never were in this part of the land that they were trying to retake. And he says, in fact, Israel didn't want to take this part of of the Amorite territory, and they asked the Amorites if they could pass through peacefully, and the Amorites attacked the Israelites. That's the historical argument he makes. Then he makes a theological argument, which is really interesting because it was assumed in the kind of worldview at the time that like, nations would conquer based on who their gods gave them. And he says, look, if, if your god, Chemosh, wanted you to have this land, why don't you have it? And then finally, he makes a legal argument uh, where he says, look, it's been 300 years since the conquest, and no Ammonite king has made this claim. What's changed? Uh, so he, he makes, he, I, and I don't know where that comes from, okay? Like, I don't know where he gets this. His, you know, typically, mercenaries are not historians as well, or lawyers, but he clearly is a surprising individual. No one would have thought Jephthah would grow up to be the hero that Israel needed, but in fact, he was. And again, it's his very background that makes him so surprising, which also makes him so prepared and uniquely suited for this role. And it's in this that we see the sovereign, but often unseen hand of God. The story of Jephthah is somewhat unique in that it never says that God raised up Jephthah. The, the, the kind of typical formula is that God raised up a judge. But we don't see God's hand as obvious in the story of Jephthah. It becomes obvious as we begin to see that Jephthah's whole life has been preparing him for this one event. But again, who would have guessed it? Who would have guessed that the whole time? I mean, Jephthah growing up the son of a prostitute and dealing with all of the discrimination and mocking when he's driven from his parents' home and forced to live in this God-forsaken wilderness town. Who would have guessed all this is from God's hand? And God is working in the midst of this to prepare Jephthah for what he wants him to do. Because the truth of the matter is that if Jephthah had grown up in ease and comfort in his hometown as a respected member of his village, he would likely not have been the man that Israel needed for this moment. I think this is why this is such a source of encouragement for us. It may not be obvious to you how God is working in your life right now or how he is using the circumstances you're in. It may not be obvious to you at this moment how God is working through your loneliness or your anxiety or the conflict in your life or the disappointments in your life. But just as with Jephthah, all of your life, every part of it, all of it is part of God's plan and he is at work in each and every bit of it. I've been reading Elizabeth Elliot lately and she experienced her fair share of suffering. I've shared this before a little bit. Right? Her first m- husband was murdered suddenly by the very tribe he was trying to reach as a missionary. He was literally hacked to death by machetes. Her second husband, about 15 years later, died an agonizing death from cancer. And she experienced just her also her normal fair share of ordinary disappointments and griefs throughout her life. But Elizabeth Elliot was someone who knew pain. 
And so she is someone who has some useful things to say about how do we endure hardship and pain. And she wrote a book on loneliness. Again, a woman who is thrice or twice widowed knows a thing or two about loneliness. And what she, in this book, she very strangely and, and shockingly, she calls loneliness a gift. She says, we, you know, we experience loneliness in so many ways. Obviously, you experience loneliness when you lose a spouse, whether that's through death or through divorce. We experience loneliness when we lose a friend, whether it's because they move away or because the friendship ends. Experience loneliness when your kids leave home. And again, Elliot knew a thing or two about loneliness, and yet she called it a gift. She called it something that God brings into the lives of believers that in fact brings a great blessing if it can be accepted as from God's hand. I can't say this kind of thing from my own experience. And so I think it's better to read it in Elizabeth Elliot's own words. She writes, I was learning that the same Lord in whom there is never the slightest variation or shadow of inconsistency, the Lord who had given me singleness and marriage as gifts of his love had now given me this one. Would I receive it? And she's referring to the loneliness from being single after she was widowed. Would I receive it from his hand? Would I thank him for it? I began to go deeper into the lesson of college days, that of finding satisfaction in Christ apart from the man I hungered for. That was a gift I could not have received in any other context than the loneliness of being single. Had I asked above all to know God, he had been answering that prayer all along in the single years, in the blessings of marriage and motherhood, and it was time to find him in the valley of the shadow of death. I personally have been so encouraged because what it tells me, I mean, again, I have not experienced what Elizabeth Elliot has experienced, but I've experienced discouragement, loneliness, anxiety. We all experience it. But to know that that is by God's hand and that in it there's a gift, and I may not see the gift right away, but he is, God is teaching me something through every part of my life. And someday I'll be able to see that there was a gift and a blessing even in the midst of what I don't want to be happening. Here's the point. Beloved, what Jephthah, the story, one of the things the story of Jephthah tells us is that nothing you experience is for nothing. But God is working through it to teach you things about himself you could not learn in any other way. This is what Jephthah could have done. And God is sovereign. He formed Jephthah to be who he needed him to be. But it's clear that Jephthah did not receive his hardships as gifts from the Lord. Again, what he experienced didn't lead him to greater trust in Yahweh, but in fact it led him to distrust Yahweh. And so what we see about Jephthah, his great weakness, is he, he tries to negotiate with God. He tries to barter with him. And at the end of the day, negotiating with God is the exact opposite of surrendering to God. So this brings us to our third point. Again, we saw Israel's repentance. We saw God raise up a very unlikely hero. But here we see Jephthah negotiating with God 
and becoming like Canaan. That's our third point, negotiating with God and becoming like Canaan. Now, it's worth noting, uh, Israel's defeat of the Ammonites is actually very brief. I mean, we're just given two verses about it. It's verse um, 32 to 33. It just says, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. So that's chapter 11, verse 32 to 33. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Arar to the neighborhood of Mineth, and so the Ammonites were subdued. That's, that's it. I mean, it's just very brief. Not what's important in this story. Of course, God defeats Israel's enemies. What's given pride of place and emphasis is this vow that Jephthah makes in verse 29 to 31. And this is where Jephthah tries to negotiate or to, to, to barter with God. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead, and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Up until this point, Jephthah seemed like a pretty confident leader. Um, and he tells the Ammonite king in, in 1127, when he writes his kind of rebuttal, letter of rebuttal, he says, the Lord, the judge, he will decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. And it's pretty clear Jephthah believes that Yahweh will decide in Israel's favor. He talks a big game, but in private, he's much less sure. And this is oftentimes the case with those who seem most confident on the outside and the inside. They're actually quite insecure and unsure. And so he goes to God. And this is the only time that Jephthah prays to God in the entire story. It's the only time he talks to God and he makes this, this vow. And he tells God, look, if you give me victory, whatever comes out of my front door when I come home, I'll offer it as a burnt offering. And what we didn't read in the tragedy of the story is that when he gets home, what comes out to meet him is his only daughter. And Jephthah keeps his vow and he offers his daughter as a human sacrifice. Now, when we read this, what we need to be clear about is that the narrator, the writer of Judges, is not writing as if Jephthah does the right thing when he offers his daughter as a human sacrifice. And in fact, the narrator won't even, won't even say the words of what Jephthah does. All he says is that Jephthah did to her according to his vow, because what Jephthah did was evil, and to even speak of it would be evil. But this vow shows us something about Jephthah, and it shows us something more broadly about Israel in general. Jephthah, in the end, does not trust the Lord. He's not willing before the battle to offer it up to God's hand and say, you do what is best. He's not willing to do what Israel has already done, saying, do whatever you want, Yahweh. He's got to get some kind of assurance. He thinks he has to bribe God to care about him. Suffering can make us trust the Lord less if we never benefit from the blessing that comes through surrender and acceptance. Suffering can make us bitter and angry and trust God less if we don't push through the hardship, if we give up too quickly, if we're not willing to accept that this, even this, somehow in the mystery of how God works is from God himself. Brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is that circumstances can be both very bad 
and in some mysterious way a gift. Again, go back to Elizabeth Elliot. There was nothing good about Jim Elliot being murdered. There's nothing good about a 29-year-old woman being widowed with a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Sorry, Nothing good about that. And yet Elizabeth Elliot eventually received it as a gift. And when we're able to receive even suffering as a gift and experience God's presence in that, it leads to a deeper trust of God. Because no longer can anything come up that'll make us question his goodness because we've seen even the worst of things somehow in the mystery of God's power and his power alone can become a gift if we receive it that way. Unfortunately, Jephthah does not seem to have received his suffering as a gift. It has not led him to trust Yahweh more, but it's led him to think that Yahweh must be the kind of God he must bribe to care about him. And his tragic vow is the result. That's the story of Jephthah. But in many ways, Jephthah is a story of Israel. And so it's good, before we finish, to zoom out a little bit and see how Jephthah is telling us about what is happening to Israel and what we can learn from that. Because the great driving problem of Judges, the reason why things decline throughout the book, is because Israel begins to look more and more and more like the nations they were supposed to have driven out. Israel becomes more Canaanite rather than the remaining Canaanites becoming more Israelite. And we see, this, we see this again in Jephthah's own life in, in two different ways, and Jephthah is a representative of the nation of Israel. So again, we see it in the fact that Jephthah wants to negotiate with God. You gotta understand, the Baals and the Asherahs were petty, fickle gods. You had to bribe them to care about you. Baal is never described as loving. And so you gotta give him stuff. Care about me, please. We've talked a lot about how we don't have gold idols, but we have idols of the heart. I want you to know that the idols of your heart don't love you either. And you'll give your whole life to them, and they'll gladly take them. But in the end, they're just dust. But Jephthah seems to think Yahweh is like the Baals and the Asherahs, so he has to make vows. God, I'll give you, I'll give you anything. Just care about me. Don't abandon me. And then we see in Jephthah's vow, you know, we tend to think when Jephthah makes this vow that he's planning to sacrifice an animal and so the tragedy is that a human walks through, but if his vow was to sacrifice an animal, then his daughter walking through wouldn't have been a big deal. He just would have said, okay, move to the side. Who's the first animal? And to be honest, when you make a vow that I'm gonna sacrifice the first thing that comes out my front door, what do you expect to see? Israelites didn't have, like, domestic pets. Jephthah's vow was to sacrifice the first human. But his plan was that it would be a servant, certainly not his only daughter. Jephthah thought Yahweh would want him to sacrifice a human because that was part of Baal worship. Again, in this instance, Jephthah looks more like a Canaanite than a worshiper of Yahweh. His understanding of God looks more like an understanding of Baal than anything we see of God in the Old Testament scriptures. And the violence he shows. I mean, he then sacrifices his daughter, which as a father, I cannot fathom. 
And then in chapter 12, which we're really not going to touch on, he then goes on to slaughter 42,000 fellow Israelites because they offend him. I mean, his violence is far more reflective of a Canaanite culture than of the culture that God wanted his people to reflect to be the place where Yahweh would dwell. Israel is fast becoming more Canaanite than Israelite. Rather than kind of leavening the culture, they're becoming enculturated. They're becoming like the culture. Now, we are, all of us, formed by our cultures. Uh, It is not a question of if we are being formed, it's how. And the only if that might be there is if we are aware. Let me give you an example. It's very interesting to compare American and European sensitivities to media. In one sense, we're very similar. We're Western. We share share a simpler a similar intellectual heritage, uh, share similar languages. But Europe, they have a a much higher tolerance for sexual content in media and a much lower tolerance for violence. In America, we're the flip. We have a very high tolerance for violence and very low tolerance for sexual content. So for instance, when I lived in Slovakia, which is in Europe, uh, you'd go to magazine stands on the street corners and it would just be porn, you know. Uh, I remember for a long time there was a 40-foot billboard along one of the major highways for a soft drink of some kind, and the billboard was a naked woman drinking a soft drink. 40 feet! Can you imagine if there was a 40-foot billboard along 264? Like, you don't have to be a Christian to be like, that's inappropriate. And so we look at that and we're, we're, we're horrified. Until you hear the Europeans talk about our watching habits, and they're horrified by the violence and the gore we watch for entertainment. But as an American, like, it just seems like nudity on a screen is worse than blood splattering across the floor. Is it? Is that really less of a distortion? and someone made in God's image being dismembered on a screen and we watch it for entertainment. The point is, we're, just, we're so formed by our culture, oftentimes in ways that we don't realize, and it affects what we instinctively think is right or wrong. So how do we, how do we avoid what Israel does, where they become more and more Canaanite, more and more formed by their culture? How do we, how do we avoid being more formed by our culture rather than by the Jesus that we worship? I'm going to finish with just three, three pieces of advice. First way, be a Bible people. Be a Bible people. When we can't even trust some of our basic intuitions because our hearts are fallen, but we have a word that is true, completely trustworthy, that has an infinite amount of treasure to be found if you were to seek it. And what you'll find, and many of you have found this far more than I have, because you've lived longer than I have, but as you age, your life experiences will bring out new depths and new insights into this word. Again, if you would just continue to seek it. This is why the first value for us as a church is biblical faithfulness. We have four values. And the first one is biblical faithfulness. So first, first way, how do we avoid being enculturated by a culture? Well, be a Bible people. 
Second way, be devoted to a church. We're formed by our communities, whether that community is your workplace, or your neighborhood, or your family, or Facebook. Communities are massively formative. And there's a lot in our culture that moves against like a robust commitment to church. There's a lot of anti-institutionalism. We're a very busy culture that makes it very difficult to be committed to church. Um, and then just hyper-individualism makes it seem like it's not that important. And that's why we've got to preach to ourselves, brothers and sisters, Jesus died, bled, rose again to form a community. Jesus died for the church. Yeah, he died for you individually, absolutely. But he died to make a church. So if we want to be where Jesus is active, then we'll be part of a church, and that will help form us in God's culture and not by the culture we're in. So first, be a Bible people. Second, be devoted to a church. And third, read and interact with those outside your culture and outside your tribe. Again, my own inconsistent standards of violence and sexual content on TV, I would never have realized how inconsistent I was being until I met someone who came from a very different culture and had very different assumptions. And similarly, it's good to read people who are outside of our own kind of theological tribe. We've got to read them probably with some kind of critical, you know, thinking, and it'll stretch you, and it'll push you. That's how we grow. Uh, I'll quote my grandpa, my grandpa for you. My grandpa was a, a very politically conservative man, and yet he subscribed for decades to the New York Times, which is a great publication, but it is not conservative. And he'd get New York Times delivered to his door as a newspaper, you know, these things that are made of paper and were rolled up. And anyways, he had that delivered every day. And I remember asking my grandpa, like, Grandpa, why don't you subscribe to, like, the Wall Street Journal? I feel like that'd be more up your alley. And my grandpa told me, I don't need to be told what I already think. Don't just read things that'll tell you what you already think. It'll help you in the long run. So in conclusion, Jephthah was a surprising deliverer. No one expected him to be a deliverer. And yet the very things that made him surprising, we see, were the things that God was at work in his life, making him to be the man that Israel needed at that time. So God is ultimately at work in your life, in every aspect of your life. And I want you to know what God wants most from you. He doesn't want you most to do great things for him. He doesn't want you to accomplish great things. He wants you to know him. And the things that he brings into your life, I cannot explain how that is accomplishing that, but it is so that you might know him if you accept it and surrender to him. I believe you'll see that they're gifts. For that is the road to true blessing and to true joy. Let's pray. Jesus, help us, remind us that you are always at work, that everything we experience, Lord, in our anxieties, you are at work. In our depression, you are at work. In our disappointments, in our conflict, in our uncertainties, in our apathy, you are at work. May you use this to draw us to yourself. Help us, Jesus. We are not able on our own strength to receive these as gifts. We are so unable, but we want to. Our flesh 
is weak, but our spirit is willing. Please help us to walk with you all the days of our life. Pray this in your holy and beautiful name.